Blog Talk Radio. Quarters. Security condition three. Thank you. Security three, sir. Zero quarters three. Intruder alert. GQ three. Intruder alert. Intruder. If I've got an intruder, I certainly wish that they um, knew how to run some things in the studio when my uh, engineer is gone. But anyway, we're here. Hi. Welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon. I'm your host and cruise director, Jennifer Perry, or Madam Perry, or J-Mod. Um, so happy to be here. And hey, you know what? Uh, I want to thank you all because uh, even more than usual because you've been subscribing, downloading on Blog Talk Radio, Stitcher, Apple iTunes, everything, and uh, subscribing. And lately, the numbers have been, you know, using my big numbers on the weekend. People listen to podcasts on the weekends, and so do I. And But lately, it's just been real steady every single day, lots and lots of uh, downloads and subscribers. I want to thank you so much because of that. It helps me bring back more cool guests like I've got tonight. And, um, uh, you know, lately, we have... Um, We've had so, so many fun people. Oh, and by the way, if you listen when we had uh, Ricky Bird on, um, you know, he's still uh, doing the clean getaway, his CD, Clean Getaway. You should uh, check that out. Um, let's see. And, you know, for $25, he'll send you an autographed CD. And uh, and you'll get a pic, I think, an autographed picture. And the money helps him to continue to go into places where people are all in recovery from alcohol or substance abuse and keep doing things for them. And he can give them free things, and people like that a lot. Uh, but anyway, I think that uh, you're going to love tonight's guest. Um, he is, I've been a fan of his for a long time. He's a rock journalist, very popular, based out of uh, San Francisco, but he's actually lived in uh, Canada and in England and uh, quite well known as a journalist, author, and Canadian TV personality. Um, if you read music magazines, if you know anything about what's going on and what's happening, who's them and who, you know who this guy is. His first book, Bare Naked Ladies, Public Stunts, Private Stories, uh, was followed by It Ain't Easy, Long John Baldry and the Birth of the British Blues, for which he also uh, wrote scripts and appeared in the documentary based on that. And he was nominated for a Gemini Award, which is the Canadian version of the Emmy for Best Writing in a Documentary Program or Series. Um, his latest book, A Wizard of True Star, Todd Rengard in the Studio, detailed history of all the people that Todd has worked with in studios. Very interesting clients. Uh, but I'm going to hey, welcome in here for the very first time to Madam Perry's Salon. Paul Myers. Welcome, Paul. Hey, hi. You can hear me fine, I hope, right? <laughs> yes. I am so sorry about that. Usually, um, you know, my husband handles all these big things. And, of course, when he's not here, you know, because he's a, he's a musician like you. He knows all where all the plugs go in and out. And, uh, and me, nah. So thank you for being so patient. Um, I, I do apologize for that, but I'm glad that you're here. How's the oh, yeah, weather totally, in San Francisco? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, it's pretty it's pretty chilly here for San Francisco, but it's not as bad as the East Coast, I guess. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I guess yeah, just well. snow and everything. Uh, we don't have snow here, at least, so. It's off and on here. We have no idea. In Atlanta, it could be, you know, whatever. Pollen mm-hmm. here and, and uh, 50 you know, 30-minute drive away, which around here is like a mile or two, uh, could be snowing, <laughs> which happened last week. But anyway, you I never think Atlanta, of Atlanta have having cold weather. I, I always think of Atlanta oh. as being like, you know, just what I – I guess I just always picture it like hot all year round just because I, I don't – I never get there. I've only ever been to the airport. Oh, well, <laughs> like a, that's like some kind of a dystopian universe in itself, isn't it? I mean, it's huge. 
Yeah. Uh, well, it's a hub, airport. right? I, I forget which airline it is, yeah. but they connected through there, and that's the only reason I was in Atlanta is that I think the flight I was on got re- rerouted because of weather or something, and they just said, we're landing in Atlanta now. So. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Well, we hope that uh, you come back again and have a good time. So uh, I don't know where to begin with you because you have so many things going on, and um, – you know, as a as a musician, you've got a new CD out, uh, got things going on. But I don't know where you want to start, but I've got this book, uh, Wizard of True Star. Okay, and well, let's start, start there. And we can talk about some yeah. of the new stuff that I'm, that I'm doing as well. But let's talk about that, that book because I, I get it. I gather that a lot of the people who listen to your show probably uh, are Todd Rundgren fans. Yes, and, you know, Chasm Sultan has been on my show. Plus, um, after... Uh, Todd, after their show um, in Atlanta back in May, um, Chasm, and you know he's just the nicest guy in the world. Well, you I know, I was going to say the minute you say his name, I the minute you say his name, I want to say I love Chasm Sultan because it's true, uh, and I've told him I've told him many times to his face, and I think I just texted him last week the same just to say hi. I'm thinking of you. He's he's a great guy. He, you know, and that's, it's always interesting when you find somebody like that and you think you know, you're a fan and you think – they really seem like a nice guy. I certainly hope they are. But he always has such a smile. But after the show, um, you know, he, my husband and I were hanging out with some of the guys. And then he goes – he takes the liberty of booking Fairy Prince and uh, uh, Greg Hawks on my show for me. Uh, you know – that's like That's a great. heart-thumping moment when, when, when a musician like him yeah. puts people on for you. I'm not. Yeah, Greg Hawks. Greg Hawks, by the way. I I, I was. Uh, I'm hoping. I'm I'm hoping that. Uh, hoping that they're in touch with Greg right now because uh, I just heard that Ralph Shuckett had to drop out of the yeah. Utopia reunion tour, and I I heard they're having a, a hard time finding people who aren't nailed down on other tours like. I just talked to two other keyboard players that I know who would have been great, and they're both busy doing the other tours. And uh, I don't know what Greg's up to, but they should call Greg. <laughs> oh gosh, definitely. I'm, you know, wonder if they already have it. Yeah, I saw they put it up. The uh, Todd groups have, and even Chasm put it up. You know, if you're if you're there waiting in the wings, that would be a hopefully, hopefully not an all about Eve moment. But you know, when somebody's ready for that moment, well, there's playing, that. There's that for sure. Have. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, certainly we live in a world where. Uh, the guy who sings with Journey was just some fan in, in like another part of the world. So, yeah. so it's like you know there is that there is that possibility, especially for legacy acts like Todd Rundgren and Utopia. I mean, who've been around for at least four decades, so they have a chance. There's generations of fans that might have learned these riffs. You know, I know one guy oh, yeah. named Chris Price. Actually, I'm just mentioning his name out loud for the first time. He's a very talented fella. He's in Los Angeles, and actually, he's a solo artist. But I, I just realized that he actually could know. He's probably the kind of guy who would know his way around the entire Utopia catalog without even studying. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. but back, oh, back to what you were talking about. You were talking about yeah. uh, Todd, and you were talking about Chasm, You're and then you were going somewhere. Oh, yeah, and I was just saying, you know, yeah, because he – oh, well, one thing I said was, yeah, he he uh, he went ahead and, and took the liberty of booking Prairie Prince and, and Greg on, so I said, I don't want to put you under any pressure, Paul. I'm just saying I would certainly be appreciated. But anyway, <laughs> you know everyone. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so – I don't know uh, everyone, by book- the way. I, just, I said, yeah, because, yeah, I'll see, I'll see if there's anyone I can think of. <laughs> I, I, I did want to like, have your listeners think that I was saying, yeah, I know everyone, because I certainly don't. But um, there are lots of musicians. I, I come in contact with a lot of musicians. In fact, the Todd Rundgren book was uh, something that I wanted to do because I was always the guy at the party who was telling people, hey, that record you're listening to there, that Patti Smith record, that's produced by Todd Rundgren. And they go, wow. And I'll go, guess who else you produced? And they'll go, who? And I say, Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell. And they're going, wait a minute, this guy who produced Patti Smith also produced Meatloaf and is also the guy who sings Can We Still Be Friends? I said, yeah, it's the same guy. And he also produced New York Dolls first album. And they were like, whoa, New York Dolls and Patti Smith? So I, I thought, I got to write a book where I talk about all these records and then talk to Todd. And then I thought, oh, yeah, but of course, I should also talk to as many of the artists as I can. And then it'll be kind of an interesting sort of story about not only his production career, but also just about the relationship between an artist, artists and producers. And sort of, uh, I think it's kind of, if I may, a kind of a unique thing. I don't think, you know, I've read, I've read producers' autobiographies, and certainly Todd will eventually release his. Uh, he's been talking about it for a while, and I know it's written. Uh, but uh, but uh, when people release their autobiographies, it's usually just their story, right? 
But you mm-hmm, never get a mm-hmm. thing where you never get a thing where like you know Tony Visconti wrote a great book about producing David Bowie and and T Rex and Morrissey and various other people that he's worked with and Enton Lizzie and and he talks about you know his point of view on that. But you never get Mark Boland talking about what it's like to be produced by. Tony Visconti, and of course, you never will now because Mark's been dead for years. But, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I also I thought it would be kind of neat while so many of these people are still alive to have like almost a dialogue, except they were never in the same room. Anyway, so that's mm-hmm. why I'm really proud of that book. But and the, to answer to get to get to the thing that initially made me mention this, I ended up talking to so many people that I would actually call heroes, like every member of XTC. I sat oh, yeah. down with Patty Smith. I sat down with the Psychedelic Furs. I sat down with uh, Meatloaf and Jim Steinman. I sat down with Daryl Hall, and I, I got a comment. I didn't actually get an interview with John Oates, but he sent some comments in. And I talked to Rick Nielsen about because Todd produced Cheap Trick, and I talked to uh, Bunny Carlos as well for that. And and there's and Robin Zander sent a comment in by email. And and so it's it's like I I was racking up all these like people that I like I always wanted to talk to. And they're all in this one sort of storybook. And, and I got to say, that made me feel super proud like and happy to have this, this little thing. And it's actually, you know, it still sells. It's, it's been out for eight years, and it's, it's still selling. It's still, it's not like, never going to be a bestseller. It's never going to knock, you know, it's never going to knock, uh, uh, you know, whatever out of the charts. But it's, and it's certainly... You know, it's a very what they call a niche book, or in some parts of America they call it a niche, a niche. But I call it niche because I'm from Toronto. But uh-huh. um, anyway, but you know, it's a specialized audience, and but that audience has been really, really kind. Like they they come to me and like people like will send me an email out of the blue and or a message on Facebook or something, and they'll say, "By the way, Paul bought another copy of this book for my buddy who has a studio." And it's like, like, and you see photographs. Photographs of studio consoles with that book out on it, like so they want to show me that they, they that they bought the book for their studio, and like to me that's like, you know, I mean I, I would obviously love a lot of money in my life at some point, but that's almost as good as money. I mean I'd be lying if I didn't say I wanted both, but I mean that's pretty great. I mean you can't be too greedy, I guess. I was gonna say, how does that make you feel when people say, and I bought another copy, and I, you know, well, yeah. else, and the especially when they they that. say they didn't steal the copy that they bought, like so, like, <laughs> like you know, or they didn't like you know download uh, download an ebook and find a way to copy it, like because that would just be ripping me off, right? Bad <laughs> enough as it is, I'm already selling kidneys over here to, to make my you know to make my rent, but. Yeah, um, how many of those have you got? You know. Well, oh, yeah, you know I mean, people. I was lucky. I was born with fifty-seven because of some freak accident, but but that's just me. Um, but um, but anyway, back to what you were saying. So you, I feel like I derail people. So I'm going to let you, you run this ship, okay? Just well, this take is it where you want to go. You. <laughs> okay. This is well, yeah. But I will say the thing with this book is, and this is not an ordinary. I mean. This is not the ordinary, uh, like a ghost-written memoir or an uh, auto or a biography. It's a uh, because it's in the studio, and we'll move on to other books after this. And because you interviewed so many different people, I mean, you really took us like to a. Uh, uh, you really gave us almost more than a snapshot, almost like a little bit of video. It was almost cinematic, let me say that, because with all the interviews that you did, and I can't imagine how long this took you, but with all the interviews that you did, it would seem, once you put it together, it was seamless as though we were having conversations, like a documentary where everybody's in the same. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what I was saying earlier. I wanted it to appear to be a dialogue. I wanted it to appear to be a forum, as, as though, yeah, as though each of these artists was sitting in a semicircle and uh, and they were uh, discussing their record. And so when Todd says something about one thing, like I might have, uh, you know, Richard Butler from the Psychedelic First says something. And then hopefully, hopefully there's a consensus. And this is the interesting thing. Of course, I, in many cases, simplified uh, consensus. There were, when there was no consensus, I would sometimes just sort of go with a version of the story that seemed the most accurate or or I would avoid... I would avoid talking about areas that were that were sort of contradictory, be, only be, only if they matter. If they didn't matter, I mean, I would I would if they mattered. Of course, I would say you know uh, blah blah disputes that because people do remember things differently. I know mm-hmm. that the guys in Grand Funk Railroad who are in the book, 
the guys in Grand Funk Railroad remember, one of the guys remembered Todd throwing a cake at uh, everybody, starting a cake fight at the Capitol Records Gold Record Ceremony. Now, he swears this happened. Todd, of course, swears it didn't happen. He says that there was cake thrown, but someone threw it at him. So from their memory, Todd Rung, and you know how people tell stories, right? People go, like, if I had if worked with Todd Runger and, like, if he produced my record, I would be telling all my friends. I know somebody who actually had two records produced by Todd Runger, and, um, my, my friend Mo Berg from The Pursuit of Happiness. And mm-hmm. if I had been in his position, have, like, I'd be, like, telling everyone I know, oh, my God, this Todd Rungren story, this Todd Rungren story. And mm-hmm. I would probably remember it a certain way, and it would become my story about that thing. And that story becomes the way you tell it to yourself to a point where you remember it. Now, every rock star has their version of that. Every rock star has a story where they did something, a record company said something, and then they said no. And usually these stories make ourselves look good. So it would be like, I told the record company, you know, to hell with you. I'm not releasing. It has to be a double album. And, you know, meanwhile, they got the record company telling a story saying, we thought this music was so good we had to make a double album. And, like, their version of the story is that they were so friendly to the artist. And, and whatever, you never know. You rarely know what the truth is. Most people are telling a version. Now, they're not lying, but they just remember it differently you know and that's yeah. what, one of the problems i have as a biographer i'm a kind of a historian now i do some work for mojo magazine freelance and uh, i write articles for them and and one of the things you do is you're interviewing someone like david crosby or roger mcguinn or you know uh, uh uh people like elton john i interviewed for an article that was in mojo and and you're not saying they're lying, but they remember it. It's been 40, 50 years for some of these stories. And, and there, was, there was narcotics involved. I mean, like, so, so I, mean, I, mean, like, I mean, God bless Todd Rundgren. He's, he's famous for having, you know, some marijuana in his life. And, um, and, and, and so I'm not saying that marijuana necessarily impedes memory because I'm not a scientist. But I'm saying that the statistical possibility exists that musicians don't remember stuff from the 70s. You know, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Even smart ones like Todd Rundgren, who's a genius. I mean, Todd, Todd's got a very big brain. <laughs> no kidding. And that's another thing, too. Even with people who may have seemed in the studio, and I'm thinking about reading from other books, too, like about XTC and so forth. Even if they seemed aggravated with Todd in the studio, or, well, we don't like this or that, later they always come out and say, well, you know, skylarking was really good. I mean, we were, you know, given a grief then, but, yeah, it was good. Or um, or like you're telling the story about the um, – the butlers, the, the guys, you know, in uh, psychedelic yeah, Richard tours. And about Richard and Tim from the psychedelic yeah, first, yeah. And them saying, you know, Todd going, look, you, know, you can make an album or you can just wrap yourself around a tree. Yeah, driving back uh, from the pub, yeah, driving, right. Yeah, uh, it's up to you. No, it's true. You know, I mean, very... and, you know, and, they, and that's absolutely, yeah, that's, and that's the job. I mean, I just, you know. Uh, and but like I said, the rewarding part of the job is when you interview Patty Smith in her favorite cafe in Greenwich Village, New York, and you Aww. leave you leave the cafe having spoken with her. She said she said on the phone that she would have 20 minutes to meet you, and you're like, oh great, I better make this a very valuable 20 minutes. And 70 minutes later, an hour and 10 minutes later, you're leaving this cafe because she was so generous and so into talking Aww. about this period in her life. And you're like, I got an hour with Patty Smith in a cafe. I'm not sure if it's the caffeine or the buzz I'm on from talking to Patty Smith, but whatever it is. And I just remember saying to myself, I actually said to myself, I walked down, um, I think it's McDougal Street, and I said to myself, almost out loud, I said, I love this job. Because at that <laughs> moment, that's one of the moments where you go, all the running around, all the second guessing and checking with agents and managers and, and then people saying we can't do it this week, uh, you know, blah, blah, has got this thing where we're going to be on tour, we can't do it, or I can do it from Germany, but the time differences are weird. And, and then finally you get that interview, and I'm walking on those cobblestone streets in Greenwich Village, the same streets that Bob Dylan walked down and Lenny Bruce and various people, mm. and you're like, uh, you're in this historic I mean, New York City, I mean, you're there, and it's like, and this is where Todd hung out and all these people, and suddenly I'm like, it, history comes alive, you know, and that's, and that's, that's what I love. I love. I love trying to get the empathy for, the, for the, uh, the feeling of what it would have been like, like when I, you know, anyway, I'm going to ramble on again, sorry. Oh, I talk fantastic. Too much. Let's, 
Let me just say, oh, not at all. Don't you stop now, Paul Myers. I'm just so thrilled to have you here. <laughs> you know, Don't you stop I'm now, Paul Myers. will be written on my grave, I, I think. Yeah. No, no. I tried to get you about a year ago. You were way too busy for me, I think so. But anyway, I'm grateful to have you here. You will not stop until, uh, well, anyway, until you're good and ready. But um, I want to say, if you want to talk to Paul Myers, if you want to call in and talk to him about his music, his rock journalism, his books, the number is 646-716-9922. Blog Talk Radio swears to me that that is a toll-free call in the continental U.S., so 646-716-9922. And I think I've got a musician on here that's also a uh, fan of your work calling in from Atlanta, Georgia, Ray Daffrico of the Night Porters. Ray, come on in. Hey there, how are you? Hi Ray. Doing? Can you hear me? Yeah, thanks thanks for having me. Hi. Uh yeah. how's it how's it going? I'm good. You? I'm I'm excellent. Yeah. I am glad I caught you. What do you want to talk about? Uh let's talk about what you're up to musically these uh, days. Well, I missed the first part, so Yeah, well musically, uh I don't know if um uh, you mentioned that um, a couple of years ago. Yeah, I had a click on my line. A couple of years ago, I was uh, I was uh, I, I had a, a project called the Paul and John. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, so you still doing that or? Hello, Paul. You there? You there? I don't hear him, Ray. How about you? I, I, no, I don't. I think we have a no, I think okay. I think he's gonna he dropped just for a moment, but I'm sure he'll come back. I'll catch up to speed. Yeah, the, he had a duo, the Paul and the John, and uh, there's a lot of video of them too on YouTube. And uh, we were just been talking about his book, uh, Wizard of Two Star, about Todd Rungard in the studio and interviewing all these people through the years that Todd worked with, um, Patty Smith oh, cool. and yeah, uh, psychedelic furs, um, you know, Richard Butler. Uh, Right, uh, XTC, so many folks, the band, and uh, also about our buddy. Uh, he mentioned, you know, our buddy Chasm. And oh, okay. uh, oh wait, um, Ray, would you just reach over and pull open the beaded curtain? I think Paul's coming back in. He had to step outside sure. to handle something. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> He's back. You know these. <laughs> that's what it's like. Yeah, these musicians. People. I had he knows to. I had everybody. to. Are you there? Can you guys hear me now? Yeah. Yeah, I had to step out because I I make so much money as a rock journalist that I had to go talk to my stockbroker for a minute, and I had to come back in. Luckily, I just sold off a bunch of shares in Cambridge Analytica. Anyway, I'm going to make a killing. Um, But um, (laughs) anyway, actually, someone's making a killing. Um, But um, uh, sorry, to answer your question, (laughs) uh, the Paul and John is a project I did with my my good friend John Mormon. Are you there? Yeah. 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 Sometimes it's hard with the three-way conversation. So I just want to say, so John Mormon and I uh, did this record, and it took about five years to write and another three to get it finally into vinyl and CD and all that stuff. And there's Uh, a band camp site for Inner Sunset, our record, and it's still, we still have like vinyl left and we have a, we can, you know, it's digital audio as well as CD. and uh, the, the, the vinyl is actually really good. It's a gatefold 180-gram vinyl. It's, it's really good. So the album's called Inner Sunset. Nice. If you go to Band Bandcamp, you can find that. And what I've been doing lately, um, we're, we're about to write some new songs for that. He's in the Orange Peels, who just released a great new record. And, uh, and look for that. And, uh, and I just did this thing uh, under the name Flam. That's F-L-A-M, exclamation mark. And a flam, of course, you might know, is a drummer, uh, mm. a, is a drum term with two drum hits hit very close together. But that's the only reason it's called flam. It's just I needed to come up with a name, and it sort of sounds like <laughs> it sounds it sounds exciting. Uh, flam is uh, me alone uh, doing like digital sort of uh, you know laptop music. But it's I say that as though I don't love it. It's actually something that is very important to me. I've been making these little pieces for 12 years, and I took about 10 of them. And put I put the ones that I, the ones that I keep coming back to the ones that I sort of put on in the car for myself even I put them on a record uh, on a actually digital only release called Garden Variety and it's available on Bandcamp also uh, if you go to the Paul Myers page that's all one word P A U L M Y E R S Paul Myers uh, uh, dot Bandcamp 
And uh, you can find that. And you can also find my early band, The Gravelberries, on that site for digi- uh, digital only as well. But the Flam, the Flam album is my first ever electronic instrumental release. And it's different. You know, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, it's more typical for me to write pop songs with lyrics and guitars and stuff. So it, 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 I like it. I think it's really fun to have out there. And it's certainly it's the kind of music that soundtracks use and, it's something that I'm just really happy to finally release. So that's it's called Garden Variety, and the artist's name is Flam. So that's what I'm up to. Uh, okay, Flam. Well, also, you got some some things with your with uh, the the Paul and the John, Paul and John, and also uh, Gravel Berries on there too. And I'll put up links to that on my social media. Oh, so that's you great. Can find it I appreciate easier, that. That's okay? great. I you know. Yeah. So uh, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, Ray. Uh, what are you doing, oh, Ray? I'm. Uh, oh, wait, well, wait. you know. I've got a Let, CD coming keep... out uh, I, yeah. uh, soon called Tunnel Visions that uh, I just sent off today to have it pressed, and hopefully I'll have that soon, and trying to set up a CD release show here in Atlanta. Cool. Uh, playing Sunday, I was supposed to play with Cheetah Chrome, but unfortunately Cheetah got sick and had to cancel the dates of the tour, but uh, we're mm. still playing. Um at the Earl on Sunday night. Um, cool. Probably early since it's a Sunday, so come on down. Uh, <laughs> I'm staying busy, you know. But, and, um, and I gotta say, I gotta say this. Um, if, I, if, if I could interrupt, please. I, I apologize, Ray. If I could didn't interrupt, Paul Ray band, the Night Porters, was very, very well uh, known. It got a lot of traction cover the U.S. and some parts of Europe they were playing in. But after the Night Porters, Ray has had some of the best band names of anyone. Uh, he, he created Kathleen Turner Overdrive, uh, <laughs> Shanghai Chester, the Ray City Rollers. Oh, that's good. They're either the, be- yeah. the best or the worst. You could look at it either way. <laughs> but sometimes the worst are the best. So. Um, that's true. <laughs> A good way to look at it. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. You like you were saying, you got to name it something. So you know. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I named my the band the Gravelberries was named after um, uh, an episode of the Flintstones, in which I, I uh, uh, Wilma makes a gravelberry pie, and um, I, one of my favorite forms of music is power pop, which is is both right. rough and sweet. And because rough and sweet could be a gravel and a berry, I thought, oh, what a good name for a power pop band, the Gravelberries. So. So that's the only that reason we called it that, you know. And uh, also a little, a little bit of a nod to the raspberries, even though we didn't sound anything like the raspberries. Uh, well, not anything really, no. I mean, we all kind of dug the raspberries, but we weren't trying to yeah. sound like them. Um, <laughs> that's cool. But, um, so, yeah, so that's, yeah. And then, of course, the Paul and John was just a cop-out because uh, it's just me and John, and we, people always talk about Paul and John and the Beatles, so we thought, let's call our band The Paul and John, and that way we have our names in the title, and, and you know, and there are days I hate that name, by the way. There's days I wish we'd come up with a name, uh, but other days I think it's great. The only thing is, it's weird is people think we might be a Beatle cover band, which is, you can hear it, the Beatles in our DNA mixed with other things, but it's not a Beatles uh, tribute or anything. Like it's, no, it's, I think it's, it's cool because I, I, it, it didn't even dawn on me for a minute. I was like, oh, yeah, those guys. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, 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 yeah. You took that's a right, minute. Right. Like, oh, well, yeah, then the, the, cool. the sarcastic answer I gave people is that we named ourselves after our two favorite popes, you know, Pope Paul yeah. and, Pope, uh, and Pope John, and and then John Paul. So I mean, like you know, so but uh, and then there's Pope Lester that nobody talks about, but that we don't put that in. There. <laughs> oh. so, so, I'm a big Power Pop fan, so that's, oh, that's, that's great. Cool. <laughs> yeah, the kind well, of stuff I tend to write too. So. You know, another thing I don't want to, because uh, I got so many things I want I, I want to talk to you about such a short amount of time, Paul. One is uh, one of your books. Um, it ain't easy. Long John Baldry, yeah. the Birth of the British Blues. The way that you came ac- about making the film, and I and I watched an interview you did with a TV station in, in uh, Vancouver, I believe, or in Canada, where you were explaining how because of uh, you said Baldry died in Vancouver. Yes, that's right. And how you well, were able yeah. to... Yeah, so, well, do you want me to tell that story? Yeah, I've mind. never heard it. Yeah, so what happened was I I had gone into a publisher's office, and we had been, we, you know, we t- talked at some networking thing where I said, I, I got some ideas for books, I'm going to come in and tell you them. And they said, he said, great, come on over. And then when I'm sitting there, I pitch him this idea, 
and there's a funny story about that idea, which I'll get back to maybe. Um, I pitched him a couple of ideas, and, and then he, he looked at me. I think he was glazing over a little bit. I don't think he really connected with any of the things I was pitching. And then he says, what do you know about John Baldry? And I said, well, I know that he lives at, he used to live in Vancouver and that he, um, he, you know, he, uh, you know, was like a big English rock star in the 50s and 60s or whatever, possibly the 70s. Mm-hmm. And, and, he, and, and then he goes, yeah, I don't know much about him, but I, I heard it like he had a, a story. And I said, well, oh, if you want to know, I mean, he discovered Elton John and he also discovered Rod Stewart. And, um, and, they, uh, and that the song Someone Saved My Life Tonight was actually written sort of um, about John Baldry and the time that Elton John tried to kill himself and, and he called uh, Bernie Taupin and John Baldry to come over. And he goes, oh, my God, you know way more about John Baldry than I do already. Do you want to write this yeah. book that we're, we're thinking of writing? And I said, well, sure, only if I can make it about – make it be about how John Baldry is the secret sort of uh, 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 – like the hidden – guy behind the British blues scene that I grew up listening to. So mm-hmm. I listened to, I listened to like, obviously like so many kids, Zeppelin and Jeff Beck. Jeff Beck is, is my guitar hero. Yeah. And, and I, I would listen to guys like Jeff Beck and of course the Rolling Stones. And I, I didn't realize they were that influenced the blues. By him, right? What's that? They were influenced by him, right? I well, think. yeah, what happened was they weren't, if yeah. they weren't directly influenced by him, like Eric Clapton mm-hmm. says to me, Eric Clapton says to me in the book, that you know he didn't look to white guys to li- to listen to, so he wasn't really right. looking at Baldry. But Baldry got up in a club when he was when Eric Clapton was young. He was at a club and Baldry got up, and this six foot seven white guy gets up and plays uh, Lead Belly tune on the acoustic guitar, and 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 El- and Eric Clapton says, "Oh my God, if he can do this, I was thinking I couldn't do it." And of course, some people still argue that you can't, but. Uh, but uh, using white guys couldn't get up and play the blues, even respectfully, he thought, no way, no one would buy that. But he saw some white guys doing it, and he went, oh, man, this is the music I want to play, so why don't I just do it? And that's what he said to me. Like, so Eric Clapton sort of says that while Baldry didn't musically influence him, the presence of John Baldry said to him, it's okay if I try this, which is a huge thing. And in, in the case of yeah. Rod Stewart, um, you know, he was playing harmonica on a subway platform. Well, it's actually a train platform. And... Baldry, uh, he had just gone to see Baldry, and Baldry's singer had, uh, and harmonica player had died. A famous guy, uh, uh, Alexis, no, I mean, sorry, um, uh, Alexis Blanky, Corner? I guess. No, it was the other guy. Yeah, uh, 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 sorry, I'm blanking on his name. It's like one of the famous guys. Uh, oh, my God, that's bad. Um, Cyril Davies. Cyril Davies had right. just oh, passed okay. away. And it was Cyril Davies' All-Stars, and so Baldry had taken over the band, and in the audience was young Rod Stewart, who had, hadn't really done many, I don't think he'd any, done any professional gigs even. And he, he was such a blues fan, just this kid playing harmonica out on the platform, and, and he'd seen Baldry that night. And Baldry hears him playing harmonica and says, you know, we could use a guy like you in the band, can you sing? Because we could also use like a backing vocalist. So Rod Stewart goes on tour with the Cyril Davies All-Stars, which is basically John Baldry All-Stars, and that's when he becomes like a performer. And then he starts Steam Packet years later with, with Baldry and uh, uh, Julie Driscoll and Brian Auger. And Brian Auger, and, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. So, so they start Steam Packet together. So that was considered at the time one of the first supergroups in Britain. And the only reason they never made a bunch of records is that they had four different managers. Like each, each one of them had a manager of their own, and they couldn't decide on you know, anything. Like they 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 basically don't, you know and there was also other things I think John was a bit of a drinker and I, I think there was a lot of there was a lot of moments that didn't quite he wasn't John Baldry was also he really enjoyed partying like he and, you know he he was just kind of a guy who would just enjoyed it when it was easy and you know he worked hard did all the dates but you know he didn't he wasn't a business guy he didn't really have any sense of the career at that time and later on he had a bit more of a sense of a career but you know. Every so often, he would just enjoy the good life a bit too much, and you know that's not the that's the shorthand on it. And there's a lot of other complications. The fact that he was a gay Englishman at a time when it was still illegal to be a homosexual mm-hmm. in England. Uh, he was a six foot seven white gay English blues man, which makes him pretty unique, I think. And you know, and wow. Nick Fleetwood, Nick Fleetwood says to me, Nick Fleetwood says to me in in in, in the book because you know Fleetwood Mac, the young Fleetwood Mac, were like also big fans of Baldry and. 
Mick Fleetwood's really tall, and he goes, Baldry was an inch taller than me, which, like, it made, you know, the two of us stood out in the London scene, right? Because they're both these, like, huge, yeah. like, guys, you know? So, anyway, so that was fascinating when I started to unearth these stories. And also, like I said earlier, I was just saying earlier in this interview, um, researching the Baldry book meant that I got to talk to Brian Auger. I got to talk to, uh, uh, you know, Elton John and Rod Stewart and Mick Fleetwood and, and uh, Ian McLagan, the late Ian McLagan from the Faces. Uh, I was friends with Ian, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, of course, he's an Austin guy, right? That's right. Yeah, right? He, he was the sweetest guy I've ever met. He's a... Well, you know, Ian met. was so great on the phone. I never got to meet him in person, but he, I did a follow-up interview with him. Like, I, I followed mm-hmm. him once. We talked for an hour, and, of course, I tried to keep it on Baldry, which was, uh, you know, but I kept asking questions about everything else, like about the faces and all that. <laughs> you know, There's a lot and, of questions and, for, for Mac, yeah. Yeah, but Mac was great, yeah. and, and, and he was just, like, some people that you could just tell, and I remember thinking if I ever get to, I got to Austin once after that, but, you know. Um, but I, I went to Austin and he, uh, 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 he wasn't there. And then the next time I went to Austin, I think he had already passed away. So, yeah, yeah. I, I saw him about a week before it happened. He would always buy the rounds of, uh, of drinks for everyone, you know, <laughs> English gentlemen, you know. Yeah, and that's funny. You can, take, you can take him out of England, yeah. but you can't take the England yeah. out of him. You know? Exactly. Yeah. <sighs> Once in Atlanta, and and uh, Ray, you may have been there at the show, but it was. Uh, but he was, he was such a gentleman. He went. My husband was playing bass that night with another band. He went and complimented my husband on his bass parts, and I just thought, you know, what a gent, what a sweet guy that would do that. But uh, one thing about Lone John Baldry, I wasn't going to mention that he did. You probably got this from Andy Summers, because I think he was playing. The, those clubs, whether it be Robert Fripp, Brian Auger, Lone John Baldry, and people, and. He said that because um, since you mentioned that he, you know, six foot seven and gay, he said that after at the end of a, a what eight, six eight hours of playing, that uh, Baldry just went and picked him up and was going to throw him in his car and take him home with him, and he did. Did he tell you that? <laughs> <laughs> no harm was wow. done. No, no, no harm yeah, he, was he, done. But he said <laughs> he said he would have killed he, me. I think Andy know? Summers played with, with Zoot Money or something, which is around the same time. Or, yeah, Zoot Money. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. Later and, version of the animal yeah. or something. Or? Yeah, yeah, I remember. And uh, Zoot Money, uh, they used to play the Flamingo Club in London all the time. Yeah, there's a there's a photograph of them all hanging out that I've seen. And you see young Andy Summers looking like Andy Summers, basically with shorter hair. Uh, it's funny, oh, how many, nice. funny how many people look like themselves even when they were like 30 years before they made it. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, so yeah, so that's that's what I'm up to. Cool. <laughs> you've got another book that that you you know there was uh, your first bare naked ladies public stunts and private stories, which I understand they prompted you to write. But I know if you're well, they about actually that. yeah they actually hired me to write that. Yeah. That's, it's so what the the thing about that book is I don't know how good it is as a book. Like I I was learning how to write. I've uh, I was asked by the band to make myself a character in the story, which I don't think I would do again. Uh, <sighs> and it 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 was. It was kind of like, because they knew me from the scene. Like, we were all musicians. My band, the Gravelberries, used to play the same scene as the Bare Naked Ladies. And they were just friends of mine. And they, uh, a couple of the guys had been following my writing career. And they, they couldn't decide who to, they wanted to write sort of an autobiographical book. And since there's five of them, they couldn't decide how to go about that. So they thought, let's get someone who trusts us, or we trust. And let's get someone who can write. And, it'll, and then someone said me. And, and then for me, it was a chance to do a book because I'd never done a book at that point. And so they, mm-hmm. they hired me to do it and I did it. And, um, it came out around the time of nine 11, which is, uh, I think, I don't mm. think it was destined to be a big seller anyway, but it, it came out like September, 2001. Um, so, so, um, so that was unfortunate, mm. but, uh, and then, you know, um, but it's, you know, that they sold it through their fan club and it was also, uh, Simon and Schuster sold it in the United States, so that was actually mm-hmm. so for me. It was a great chance to learn how to write a book. The first book that I really worked, I felt like I really got uh, like like my craft together was uh, the Baldry book, and that was mm-hmm. that was through a Canadian publisher called Douglas and McIntyre, and uh, uh, Greystone Books actually. Greystone Books is, uh, is, is the uh, is the imprint, and then the Todd book well, was through Jawbone Press. And that Todd Rungrum book was like something that was the first book that I ever completely initiated on my own. You know what I mean? Like I, I had the yeah. idea to the to the publisher, and that's what they did. So, 
But cool. one thing I forgot back there, uh, winding back just a wee bit, is that after um, after your book, uh, Long John Baldry, uh, It Ain't Easy, Long John Baldry and the Birth of the British Blues, uh, tell us about Nick Orchard's film. And we cried, oh, yeah, well, Nick Orchard. You. Yeah. Um, Nick Orchard was... Um, um, Nick Orchard was making a film about Long John Baldry, and uh, I needed, and Long, Long John Baldry had already passed away at this point, and he had done interviews with Long John in London, and he had been uh, filming him in the streets of London, and uh, uh, and so there were, you know, and, and it was great because it was stuff that I needed. I couldn't interview Long John because he'd passed away. Mm-hmm. So this was him talking to the camera about his old haunts and telling stories about London. And I thought, oh, my God, it would be so good to have this footage. So I have this uh, transcribed and, you, and use some of it, uh, you know, and just say, like, he, he told filmmaker Nick Orchard, blah, blah, blah. Well, Nick said, here's what we'll do. He was generous as heck. He said, I'll let you come in and I'll let you watch all the footage and I'll let you, you know, I'll let you borrow the tape and, you know, and I transcribed it. And then, um, and then he said, um, and I'll let you have access to some of the photographs, but maybe what you could do for me is appear in my documentary. And I thought, well, that's a win-win because then I get mm-hmm. to be, then I get to be in someone's film. Well, then, <laughs> so then he says, we're getting a narrator to come in and narrate the sort of what they call interstitials, you know, between between segments, they will have like a voiceover that writes the sort of like, you know, and then he went to school and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, you know. Well, he said, since you are like kind of an expert now, can you write it? And I will hire you. So they paid me and they interviewed me and they paid me to write the dialogue. And then it goes on. uh, It was on Channel 4 in Britain, I think, or I can't remember what channel in Britain. And it was on a Canadian version of, uh, I think, E, which is not the same at all as the American E, E Entertainment. And anyway, it gets nominated for, for the Canadian version of an Emmy. Uh, it was like uh, a list of five uh, documentaries that year. So my first time ever writing for a documentary and I get like a nomination, which is like mm-hmm. all of this is like incredible good fortune. And I will say a lot of it's to do with just saying yes to things. Like if people, if people say, do you think you could write the documentary? And I'm like, well, I'll try. You know, I won't yeah. say no. <laughs> and uh, and, and, and the, I lost because there was a documentary about Darfur uh, and I have no problem losing to a documentary about great humanitarians. Uh, yeah. it, it, was, it was one of those things that when you see the nominees, it's like you know that if you're nominated for a music documentary and it's up against you know, something about the AIDS crisis or something like that, you're like, of course I should not win and I won't win. And, uh, and so it was, if you're going to lose, you should lose to something that's doing a good thing, like a good cause. You know? right. yeah. So, so yeah. Like, but I don't think I lost. I, I, just, I won because I got nominated, right? So, I mean, honestly, I feel that way. Gemini. Yeah. Yeah, well, so, well, just, you, you know. You've got, so, uh, you know, I was going to say, uh, one of the things, and I think I've heard you say this too um, in interviews, uh, when you, as a rock journalist, as a music journalist, uh, because you've written uh, for, for so many magazines, uh, I imagine it must be, and this is, as you can see, this is why I have my dear friend Ray when I have people like uh, Chasm Sultan on and so forth. Ray, being a musician, could talk gear just like you could talk gear and music and stuff to them and really surprise them, you know, like, oh, oh, <laughs> he knows what we're mm-hmm. talking about. But you just have a you've got a new article out on um and, and Ray, don't think I'm just using you. You know I I respect you too. But, oh, go um, ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but um you've got a new article out, uh just hit the uh, British version of uh the British editions of Mojo magazine about Derek Taylor. Could you tell us about that so we Do can... you guys know who Derek Taylor is? Yeah, I, I read his book yes. actually. The Which one did you read? The, the um, I, it's got a long title. I think it might be a Beatles song, but um, oh, wasn't it you know Time Goes By? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, that was, so that's just being that's being reissued, by the way. I have nothing to do with writing that book or anything like that. But um, so what happened was, for years, I've been pitching this story about uh, long about uh, Derek Taylor, and uh, I, I, uh, I, Derek Taylor was the Beatles. I'm going to tell your listeners as well. Okay, so. Derek Taylor was the Beatles publicist, and he's well known as that. And and people who dig a little deeper will know that he also worked in Los Angeles between 1965 mm-hmm. and 1968. 
uh, he'd left the Beatles uh, for various reasons around just as Beatlemania was happening. He he uh, got an offer to work in, in Hollywood and as a publicist. And so he ended up working for, uh, well, he worked for a, a lot of people. He worked for like the Birds and the Buffalo Springfield, and he worked for uh, uh, the Beach Boys eventually. And he also worked for like long uh, for Captain Beefheart, uh, uh, wow. a lot of people, like uh, Tiny mm. Tim at one point. Mae West, he, he wrote PR for Mae West, who was, had a rock and roll album out in 1967 uh, or something. He becomes kind of instrumental. So I wrote this article for Mojo Magazine that's coming out. like It's already hitting like subscription. Uh, people who get subscribed to Mojo are already getting it, and I've seen people sending me photographs of the actual. It's already out, kind of. And I don't know if it's available yet in like the newsstands because it's so it just came out Friday. But it's um, wow. it's about Derek Taylor's California years. So just that three year window, and it's kind of how amazing how he he plays such an important part of the history of California rock because he's the guy who helps create what I call the myths. You know, he's the guy who says uh, Brian Wilson is a genius. And everyone after that will write, Brian Wilson is a genius. But they kind of read it in a press release, and it's true that Brian Wilson is a genius. But it's, mm-hmm. it's the guy who sort of codified it into this idea that in short sentence, we're going to say Brian Wilson is a genius. And he's also the guy who said that the birds were the American Beatles, which is an interesting posture to take, uh, which they kind of lived up to. And they wanted to meet the Beatles through Derek Taylor, so they went to London and they met the Beatles. And George, of course was really inspired uh, by, um, by, by the birds when he heard them, and he wrote, If I Needed Someone, and all this sort of cross-pollination that Derek Taylor helped set up. And Derek Taylor right. also goes on to be a key player in uh, the creation and promotion of the Monterey Pop Festival. So it's like this huge thing, all these things happen in California around the time that Derek Taylor has a hand in sort of being a PR guy. And he's right. also kind of an incredible guy. He's like a bon vivant. He's a little older than most mm-hmm. of the people, so he's he's very literary. He's very effete. He's got kind of a well, he's kind of a working man. He's from Liverpool, but he's got kind of a, a classiness to him, and he's kind of a character, and he's charming. And and I uh, I yeah, I make no secret that I total fan of Derek Taylor, and and of course he passed away in the 90s right. um, from cancer. Yeah, 97. But but mm-hmm. but his last thing he worked at was like doing the Beatles uh, anthology. Like, so they, they brought him back, and he always loved the Beatles. So even when he left the Beatles, he was always thinking about the Beatles and always being kind of an ambassador of the Beatles. So people would ask him in Hollywood, they'd say, what do the Beatles think? And he, would, he was still in touch with them. And then when they started Apple, they hired him back from California. So that's how much right. they wanted him back. And so he was the guy, he, at every step of the, the career, Derek Taylor was kind of the guy who helped sort of you know, mold the idea. He was the one who identified love as a constant theme in all the Beatles songs and started telling that the Beatles were all about love. And, you know, the Beatles, I think, probably read their own PR and went, yeah, that's right, you know, we're, we're about love. You know, so, of course, I can't do without the voice. Um, but, uh, hey, I like that. We're about love. That's great. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, and so I, I, love, I love that Derek was such a man of passion that when he believed in something like the birds, like he, he was knocked out by the birds. He, he, he was convinced that the birds were like the greatest American group ever, you know? And, the, and then when he yeah. went to the Beach Boys, Derek, uh, uh, Brian Wilson says that Derek changed how he saw himself. Like Brian, Brian said that after he died. He said it was just like a trip to hang around with, uh, with, with Derek because he made me feel important, you know? And like, and right, like, he needed just that. Amazing. You think of these people as already kind of like they're already set in their ways, but they, uh, there was a time when all this stuff was liquid. You know, like like the way a uh, volcanic rock turns you know turns into uh, a future island. You know, it's forming and all the molten lava is going to the ocean, and next thing you know, you've got a mountain there. Well, the, the, Derek was around when all that stuff was lava. You know, like like wow. right. if, I, if I haven't stretched the analogy beyond uh, beyond usefulness. <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah, seriously. So that's coming out now. That's coming out now. It's actually the album. The, uh, the article is called King King Inc. And it's uh, it's just yeah, it's about Derek Taylor's Los Angeles years. You know what I call his wow. sunset trip. He's been busy. <laughs> so, and also, he also was around when when the Beatles and, and the Birds were doing LSD together. So there's a whole change in the way you know the psychedelic rock movement started around that time, or at least the pop version of the psychedelic movement. 
So it's, right. it's just like, yeah, Derek is definitely, you know, the Woody Allen movie Zelig? Yeah. Zelig one, is a character who shows up in history. The idea is that this one character shows up in history and makes everything happen. And like, it's yeah. like, it turns out it's the same guy every time. Well, Derek Taylor's name pops up throughout the 60s and the 70s. Because, I mean, even in the 70s, he worked for Warner Brothers and helped launch the careers of so many. Uh, I think Alice Cooper said that their first <laughs> big break in London was because of Derek Taylor. You know, uh, Alice Cooper uh, was coming to London and they needed publicity and Derek did a really great job sort of like making it mm. an event when Alice Cooper came to town. So like that was after the Beatles, you know, like so. Yeah. So he's a great guy. And did did he produce or co-produce a Nielsen album? Yeah, that's right. He uh, he was, a, well, see, he discovered, he kind of discovered Harry Nielsen. Like Nielsen, Nielsen was a songwriter and he put out a record called uh, Ariel, um, I think it was Pandemonium Shadows or Errol Ballet. You think a guy like me would know exactly which album I mean. Whatever his first album was. And he uh, he loved it so much that he went out and bought, he heard on the radio and he went out and bought copies and sent them to the Beatles and sent them to other people that he knew. And the Beatles, uh, within about two years, I think in 68, when they were announcing Beatle uh, Apple press, uh, the, the press event, the sort of big press conference, they said, well, who are you guys listening to the Beatles? And John Lennon said, our favorite group is Nilsson. You know, and, and Paul said, oh, we love Nilsson. And George Harrison invited Nilsson over when he was in L.A. And, and you know, and, and, and that really helped solidify that Nilsson was somebody that was like, you know, a big, a big player. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in 73, in 73 um, um, Derek produces um, an album for him in London, like A Touch of Schmilson in the Night. So a little touch cool. of in the night. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So and they were still they were buddies throughout it all, and uh, I'm sure they drank a few drinks together. Uh, Derek eventually sobered up, um, but uh, cancer caught up with him eventually too. So, but uh, Derek was known to be a, a guy who liked his uh, his drinks and uh, probably a few psychedelics, you know. But uh, he, right he, had a, he was married and had a family of like five or six the whole time. I mean. Various mm-hmm. times during, uh, like, and he, he was, a, from all accounts, a good family man. I mean, probably partied and did things that we don't know about, but he definitely was always providing for his family and loved his wife dearly. And so, yeah, it's an interesting yeah. story that he kept this suburban life together as well while he was doing all of that. So. Yeah, I don't think the, the others married. did as well. Yeah, Sorry, ahead, one Ray. at a time. <laughs> uh yeah, I, I was saying I, I don't think the other guys did as well with that <laughs> at yeah. that time period. But, uh, but yeah, I that's fascinating. You were—it's it's great to hear this 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 stuff. It's right up my alley. So I love it. Yeah. So that's, that's, and this. Yeah, the other thing I got is a book say, coming out. Yeah, that's where but, I'm going. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you're going there? Okay, Go well. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. So, so <laughs> what's interesting is all the books. All the books and articles that I've been sort of, uh, I was going to say known for, but uh, I'm not well known in that sense. But uh, uh, if you know me, you know me for this other stuff. Well, I've always been a huge fan of comedy. And I grew up in Toronto with uh, my brother, Mike, from Second City, who became Saturday Night Live. And you know Mike Myers now. Well, in our little social group, there was a Canadian comedy troupe called The Kids in the Hall. And they were very popular mm-hmm. in the 90s, and they had, a, mm-hmm. they had an HBO show and, and, and CBC in Canada. And they're still going, and they still do tours, and they, they've done a few TV shows and movies. And um, I was always so fascinated with the kids in the hall and wanted to pay tribute to them because they're friends of mine, but they're also a great, a great innovative comedy troupe. And I would hear other American comedians say, you know, who I loved. And they usually name, like, SCTV and the Kids in the Hall, if they're mentioning uh, a certain era. Like, and, and I thought, wow, like the Kids in the Hall are a huge influence on all these people, and yet some generations probably won't know of them directly, or they might know, but they're not really sure. And, and so I thought, I'm going to do a book about them. Much like the Todd book, I wanted to do a book that was just finally telling a story about these guys and how influential they are. So this, uh, this fall... Um, uh, House of Anansi Press, which is based in Toronto, is publishing One Dumb Guy, the authorized biography of the kids in the hall. And uh, the, the title One Dumb Guy comes from the fact that um, um, they're, they're five really smart guys, uh, but they, they often are very self-deprecating about 
their business fortunes or whatever they've done, and they'll say that we're really we're five smart guys, but together we're one dumb guy. You know, which is so funny for comedians to say that. You know, because you know, I mean, they're. They're, that sounds you know, very Canadian for some reason. Yeah, it's a, well, it's a very di- yeah. I mean, I think yeah. I, all Canadian passports have the word "sorry" written inside them. But like, <laughs> we're very apologetic people. But um, but that's not to say we're not you know, like we we will still beat we still beat each other to death sometimes. Except that the uh, the ambulance is paid for. You know, it's a, we got healthcare, so that's good. But uh, yeah, but I, I will say this. So it's been gratifying to do this thing, and it's funny because I was mentioning that my first book ever was about the Bare Naked Ladies, which was a five-man band that wanted me to write their story. Well, this book is a five-man comedy troupe, and I'm kind of telling their story. And so the parallels in my career, it's very interesting how I often refer to the Kids in the Hall as a band because they're very rock and roll. They use music a lot in their work. Um, they're very known for having musicals. Like segments, like uh, mu- rock music used as uh, connective t- tissue in their sketches, like or they have sketches about music. Uh, there's a famous heavy uh, rock band in their in their TV show called Armada. Uh, well, it's actually Armada. Was it Rod Torfelson's Armada featuring Herman Menderchuk, which is the full name? Uh, but uh, but uh, so it's. I'm really excited about this finally coming out. In fact, it's it's not to plug 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 here, but it's. You can pre-order One Dumb Guy by Paul Myers on, like, wherever you do that. Like, ask your bookstore, ask your independent bookstore, or if you have to, go to Amazon.com or .ca in Canada. Like, like I don't have that memorized. Uh, but um, <laughs> I will say this. Uh, someone told me, as much as I love independent bookstores, if you pre-order at Amazon, at least they know there's a big demand for it. And, and so they'll order enough that people who don't have a bookstore in their town anymore can it, because they, because Amazon put them out of business, at least they can buy the book through Amazon. And if Amazon knows it's there, they'll order more. And that's good. So pre-ordering yeah. now is good. And it tells my publisher that they did the right thing by uh, signing me to do this book. So. Yes. And, and, Paul, by profession, I'm an entertainment publicist, and most of my clients are authors. So, I'll, yeah, you're, you're doing the right. I, I will push all that to um, all the links for you, the same as I would for a client. So we'll be pushing that on all of oh, our you. social media. I know that Ray will tell people we are so thrilled to have you here. And I'm thank you. So, uh, kids in the hall. I, I mean, you know, Ray, weren't you a fan? I mean, they're such a popular band here. I mean, band. See, here I go with that. Such a popular show and comedy group. When I mentioned yesterday, I was talking to my husband about all the things that I was about you. And I said, and he's got a new book coming out. And I said, Kids in the Hall. And the first thing, uh, Ray, the first thing Denton says is temp. You know, because they always had a thing where they would play oh, him right. and drag. I mean, the temps all there. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kathy and yeah, Kathy. Yeah. yeah. The two Kathy. Yeah, temp. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's great. Uh, just as you said about Patty Smith. I'm going mm-hmm. to say you have been so generous with your time uh, well, thank you. to me and Ray thank and my listeners, that. and I am so Definitely, thrilled yeah. to have you here. And uh, we hope we, you know, we hope you'll come back and visit us again, Paul. Maybe come back with the uh, one dumb yeah. guy. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, yeah. When that's happening, and then who knows? I, I doubt. I doubt like, they can afford a book tour. But if I come to your town, that'd be great too. There's a, oh, there's yeah. a good uh, place called Acapella Books that would host it. Yeah. Uh, Oh great! Well, I'll put that in the list of of places. That, yeah, yeah. You know, if they if someone could get me to to Atlanta, I would definitely do it. If there's like a big book event there, let me know, and uh, maybe my right. publisher can put it on the map. Oh, uh, the book festival in September, Labor Day weekend. Of course, that here's your book well, there you go. in October. But yeah, if but I'm around, that's the that's one of the biggest yeah, no, in the country. It'd, it'd be great. Well, let them know. Like, yeah. I, the best thing is when they want to fly me in, frankly, because it's easier for me to oh. do it if I if I'm not having to scrounge around to take back bottles to get the money for the ticket. But, okay, yeah, so, or, going to, or going to Chick-fil-A through the drive-thru on Sunday when nobody's there when you can get all the change. I understand that. And, uh, oh, my so, God, that's a great I, idea. I know. <laughs> you know, there's got to be a hey, – as my, as my uh, uh, friends used to say, where there's a will, there's a relative. So anyway, so oh, I will have everything out for uh, Paul Myers, uh, books, music, and uh, – Paul, thank you so much. Please, please know you're welcome back. Okay. We'll tell uh, Cass hello for you. My, uh, my uh, co-pilot here, Ray Daffrico, go see him Sunday night at the Earl. And, there you uh, go. Uh, and don't forget my song and my, uh, my philosophy, which is everybody's got to swing. Thank you so uh, very much. Oh, thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you.
Thank you. I love you. Bye-bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.